Did you miss me? Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 18, Antichrist of Coffee. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but thank you for your patience. Let's get into what I think is going to be the coolest coffee brewer for a tasting we've done on the podcast up to now, the Siphon. You may want to watch this part of the podcast on YouTube if you've never seen one of these before. Okay, so today we used a Siphon coffee maker to make our coffee, and um, as an added uniqueness, we're also using a decaf coffee. Because both the siphon and decaffeination are going to feature this episode, as well as cereal. We'll have to watch the episode to find out what happens. But let's get into the coffee tasting. So this is from a local coffee shop called Satellite Coffee. It's definitely one of my favorite local coffee shops. They use a Swiss method on decaffeinating their coffee, which is relatively new in comparison to the original methods they were using. I do find that decaffeination actually changes the way coffee tastes sometimes, depending on the method in which they do it. So the Swiss method does actually affect the taste of the coffee just ever so slightly. Let's go ahead and start by smelling it. So, not a whole lot of smell overall. Try tasting it. It's honestly a little bit flat. It's a pretty mild coffee. Definitely more of a medium roast overall. I would say it's probably got Latin American aspects. It's honestly a pretty easy coffee to drink, though. It's not super flavorful in any specific direction. It has a little bit of notes of um, earthy herbal, a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of nutty, so it might be a bit of a mix of different regions. But all in all, it's a pretty smooth coffee, um, not super acidic, and I'm sure the siphon is also affecting that a little bit in the overall flavor profile. So let's get into the story of how coffee and cereal went to war. Before we jump back into the history of coffee, I wanted to give you all a special treat first. Quite literally, as I found out, the first Friday of June is National Donut Day. So to celebrate, here's a brief history of donuts. Donuts trace their history back to ancient Greece and Rome, where cooks would fry strips of dough and cover them in honey, or even fish sauce, which probably sounds a little less appealing than the glazing we use today. A few centuries later in the medieval period, Arab cooks similarly fried pieces of dough and then soaked them in sugary syrup. These sort of fritters became popular in Northern Europe by the early modern era in the 1400s. Germany then took this and made it more of a savory pastry, adding meat or mushrooms as they often lacked access to sugar. The Dutch and later pilgrims 
brought donuts to the New World. And finally, holes were introduced to donuts, as egg yolks were being added to dough and resulted in a richer, more firm pastry, but one which was raw at the center. Although the innovation of the hole to the donut is generally attributed to Captain Hanson Gregory, supposedly his ship hit a storm in June of 1847, and so used the ship's steering wheel as a donut holder to free up his hands by stabbing the spoke through the pastry. He realized after he actually preferred the donut without a raw center, and so this led to our modern donut. After this point, donuts seem to have become a primarily American pastry. By World War I, they became a patriotic food for the troops, with donut girls frying fresh donuts for soldiers in France, with those troops becoming known as doughboys. World War II, similarly, had donut dollies, which replaced the donut girls. Jewish bakers began making a type of dough over a thousand years ago, being served today as part of Hanukkah celebrations as a reminder of the miracle of the Hanukkah oil. From Jewish innovation, we gained the first automated donut machine in 1930. It was also the son of a Jewish immigrant who launched a donut and coffee shop in 1948, called Open Kettle, which brought donuts and coffee together for blue-collar Americans in the heart of the country. The man was William Rosenberg, and two years later, in 1950, he changed the company's name to Dunkin' Donuts. America runs on Dunkin'. Getting back into the history of coffee, during the late 19th century, a new fear arose as a new threat to humanity became stronger and more intelligent. Goats moved to take over the world. Well, actually, it was a growing fear of caffeine. In fact, coffee substitutes took off as a popular solution to that scary caffeine. See, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, as in the cereal brand Kellogg, was sure coffee and tea were causing illness. He allegedly was quoted as saying, quote, Insanity has been traced to the coffee habit, end quote. Into this, Charlie Post, yes, also as in the cereal brand Post, began seeking treatments for his supposed mental illness, known in this period as neurasthenia. See, neurasthenia was the late 19th century equivalent of having an imbalance in your humors, which was a common medical understanding for issues which could not be explained during the medieval and early modern era. Neurasthenia apparently affected mostly businessmen and upper-class folk, who used their brain too much and became neurotic. Now, this whole disorder seems to have been largely BS, but in any case, people started pinning the blame on coffee. And really, should we even be surprised by this point? I mean, coffee has been the biggest scapegoat for much of history. Boom. Two goat references this episode. Sorry, I had to make up for missing it in the past few episodes. In any case, Post began seeing Dr. Kellogg to get treatments for his neurasthenia. Seeing no progress, he decided to go with a guru instead. And after he was cured of the coffee disease, he opened up his own treatment facility for people with the coffees. And out of this, we get Post's solution for the greater public, a substitute for coffee. Now, I know what you're saying. 
he made chicory the next big thing, right? Well, that would be too easy for a capitalist businessman like Post. Instead, he invented Postum, a grain-based substitute which was rather similar to what Kellogg was serving over at his treatment facility. Post decided to go all-in on this new product, launching his cereal business to cure mental inharmony through right thinking. This has a rather Buddhist undertone to me, sounding like right intention or right thought, which helps to determine our mental states. So I guess becoming a sort of decaf Buddha, he went around trying to help people reach enlightenment through no more coffee drinking, and his product actually took off with great success. Although it wasn't through proselytizing, but through a rather expensive marketing campaign. His ads were aimed at the common man which really meant dumbing everything down, using lots of pictures. He promised a cure for coffee heart, coffee neuralgia, and brain fog. Now, I'm not sure what coffee heart is, but caffeine can obviously increase heart rate, and in extreme cases can cause heart palpitations. But even if we give his cereal alternative credit for preventing a heart attack, I don't think cereal will cure neuralgia. And let's be honest, many people today drink coffee to help with brain fog. He went as far as claiming coffee even caused blindness. I'm blind. I'm not blind 23 hours a day or 22 hours a day. I'm blind the whole goddamn time. His period of time saw Americans eating lots of greasy meat, so similar to today, and seeking remedies for this. In fact, food and drinks laced with drugs was commonplace around the turn of the century. Post utilized the late 19th century equivalent of WebMD as a scare tactic to manipulate people into switching to his product. Now, interestingly, Post was known to have drank coffee despite all of its harmful attributes, but he would simply switch back to Postum coffee once he became sick from coffee consumption. Clearly loving irony, Post wrote of his distaste for organized labor, all the while he was known for having very harsh work conditions for his employees who made very little money and could be penalized over small mistakes. That would be like having a history podcast on coffee and not even drinking coffee. Okay, well, now that the cat's out of the bag. Unfortunately, most brands struggled to compete with Post's slanderous campaign against coffee. Oriosa and Wilson Spice Company were the only two coffee brands which were able to combat post ads, with smaller companies attempting to promise consumers their coffee was free of any poisons. His product became a big seller, being sold in most stores across the U.S. Inevitably, other brands arose to sell generic versions of Postum at a lower price. Post wouldn't have this, though, and so created Monk's Brew at a fraction of the price to undercut his competitor's price, only to stop selling Monk's Brew once he successfully put them all out of business. Well, technically, he stopped selling the brand, but he continued selling the product itself as Postum at a much higher cost. The early 20th century saw further increase in concerns about the effects of caffeine, or a fear of coffee. A coffee-phobia, if you will, or let's call it cophobia. Worldwide concern arose with doctors in various countries suggesting coffee caused heart palpitations, irregular pulse, nervousness, indigestion, and insomnia. 
all of which are more or less valid claims rather than simple slander. One doctor in London referred to coffee drinkers as, quote, coffee drunkards, as I may call them, are greatly growing in number, end quote. Coffee was becoming known as a habit, or as they were implying, an addiction, which was an international concern. In fact, if you remember from our Dawn of Revolution episode, it was at this point in time the King of Sweden, Gustav III, wanted to ban coffee for its ill effects so badly that he had two criminals tested upon with coffee and tea. They were both twins, with one given tea every day and the other given coffee. The tea-drinking twin actually died first. Flashback at post came from many in the coffee market, including the editor over the tea and coffee trade journal, William Euchers. Euchers wrote an editorial about, quote, Post, who every year spends a million and a half in advertising alone? My, what a commentary on the gullibility of the American public. End quote. Counter-ads were even made in support of coffee, one of which suggested a 92-year-old had lived a healthy life as, quote, the only health rule she followed is to drink four cups of strong coffee a day, end quote. I guess we can coin a new term on the podcast. A coffee a day keeps the doctor away. Still, though, coffee companies could not come up with ad campaigns which could match Post. In fact, Post was only slowed down after Kohler's Weekly, a national periodical, took Post to court for fraudulent claims. Post was fined $50,000 for his miraculous, yet unprovable, claims surrounding the health effects of grape nuts. He still continued to make health claims for his products, but within a much more reasonable scope. On top of this, Dr. Harvey Wiley was pushing for the Pure Food and Drugs Act to be passed. This new legislation meant companies had to properly label what was in their product, and there could no longer be false advertising. This meant Postum could no longer use coffee in its title. So things looked good for coffee producers for a time. Dr. Wiley was on their side and... Wait. Wiley says coffee can't contain chicory, and now we have to properly label where coffee is from? What gives? Well, as it turns out, Wiley wasn't on coffee side or post. Instead, he simply wanted to ensure clarity in food, even over actual health concerns like toxins and poisons. In fact, Wiley felt caffeine was harmful but recognized it occurred naturally in coffee and tea, and realized it was already too ingrained in American society. Coca-Cola, however, became a target of his efforts, as caffeine was added to the drink. He actually had a Coke shipment of 40 barrels and 21 kegs seized. Things boiled over in a trial between the government and Coca-Cola in 1911, with many coffee producers fearing they would be next, but... The judge sided with Coke, and Wiley was forced to step down shortly thereafter. Wiley later admitted, quote, I sit down every morning and drink my coffee. I like it. End quote. It's just a fucking cup of coffee, lady. At this point in time, a new method of coffee making was introduced, decaf. Created in Germany by Ludwig Roselius in 1906, his decaffeination process took off around the world. Decafa, as it was first known in the U.S., used steam to heat green coffee beans and then soaked them in benzol to remove the caffeine. 
Unfortunately, benzol or benzene is a potentially toxic substance, so it wasn't long before someone else came up with a different method of extracting caffeine. It was in fact another German, Robert Hubner, in 1911, who came up with the pure water process to remove caffeine. And this brings us to the end of C.W. Post. Post had continued to combat coffee all these years, and had earned the nickname Antichrist of Coffee. This would only last for so long, though, as Post came down with appendicitis, the very illness his grape nuts were said to cure. Ultimately, though, it wasn't appendicitis which claimed his life, but his own suicide. Unfortunately for coffee businessmen, it wasn't the end of Post's war on coffee as his daughter took over the company, turning it into General Foods, and continued making Postum and anti-coffee ads. But 14 years after Post's death, General Foods purchased Maxwell Coffee House in 1928 and began selling the drug drink itself. Let's jump back across the Atlantic to Europe to see what's been going on over there with coffee since we last left off. Coffee making remained much the same in Europe from the time of its arrival until the 19th century. Coffee was often ground using a mortar and pestle, and brewing was done by simply steeping those grounds in hot water with the biggest concern being coffee grounds left in the drink. However, the invention of the percolator out of Paris in 1806 and the siphon out of Berlin in the 1830s allowed coffee to evolve into a higher quality beverage. The siphon was created by Lyof of Berlin, but it was a French woman, Madame Vichu, who patented the first vacuum brewer as we think of it today. She introduced it in 1840 with two glass balloons held together by a frame. Speaking of the French, surprisingly, the French press was only introduced in 1929 and was ironically named so by an Italian, Attilio Calamani. And finally, the mocha pot was invented in 1933 by the Italian Luigi De Ponti. With all these new brewing methods came the question of how to best make large batches of coffee. In the United States, we see percolators becoming a popular way of producing coffee during the late 19th and early 20th century. And if you want to see the percolator I used for a coffee tasting previously, then make sure to check out our episode on the history of chicory. However, a new form of coffee brewing overtook the traditional percolator, drip coffee. The drip coffee maker was invented by a German housewife, Melita Benz, by putting holes in the bottom of a tin cup and lining it with her son's blotter paper. This allowed the water to move through the grounds faster than the percolator, which helped to prevent overbrewed bitter coffee. While many restaurants today may leave coffee in a brewer all day, anyone with even a mild love for coffee will probably prefer freshly brewed coffee. This led to the need for something faster, something quicker, something more express. This resulted in our modern espresso. Espresso was created by Luigi Bizzata, an Italian mechanic who invented a machine so powerful and so fast it changed the way we think of coffee today. See, another Italian, Angelo Moriando, created a new steam machine for the economic and instantaneous confection of coffee beverage. If you couldn't guess by the simple, easy-to-remember name, his invention was a commercial failure. 
However, this machine by Luigi was much more successful. Luigi's espresso machine was called Gigante and was, surprise, surprise, giant. A friend of Luigi purchased the patent for his machine, allowing both men to work on their own creative version of the machine. One such machine was presented at the 1906 Milan Fair called the Ideale. These new espresso machines relied on a boiler producing steam and pressure to force water through densely packed coffee. While a shot of espresso today is pulled in around 20 seconds, this was a game changer at the time, as it meant coffee could be brewed in under a minute instead of around five minutes for other brewing methods like the siphon, French press, and percolator. Modern machines, of course, just need a button to work, and they can produce nine times atmospheric pressure, whereas the early machine could only double atmospheric pressure and required an open flame to boil the water. Since it would take another few decades to create a better pressure system, someone needed to innovate the machine to help it pull shots faster. And if you're thinking it's another Italian, well, you would be correct. This Italian, Achille Gaggia, was the one who added the lever to the machine. The lever was pulled down to compress a spring, which, once released, helped force the water through the tightly packed coffee grounds. In fact, we call it pulling a shot of espresso due to this action of physically pulling a lever when making espresso. Espresso, of course, being Italian for express or fast. If you enjoyed this episode on the history of donuts and coffee, we are fast approaching episode 20. So like episode 10, we will have a recap of everything in the show thus far. If any of you have questions or comments about the show, feel free to mention them on social media at the Complete History Podcast series or by emailing us at completehistorypod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Ara Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a coffee or tea a month, you can support this and future projects in the series while getting access to members' episodes, access to transcripts of the show, and a chance to win merch. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on and make sure to share it with your family and friends. To close, here is a quote from A.J. Lee. Never trust anyone who doesn't drink coffee.